navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. So we are fortunate enough to have Anthony Brown back with us in the studio. Hopefully you listened to prior podcasts with Anthony to learn a bit about him. And today we are going to talk a little more law, talk about what's going on in the legal world right now, in the LGBTQ community, what the uh, hot topics are, what Anthony's up to. So thanks for coming back. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure. For those lawyers that may be interested to get into this field of practice of what you do, can you give us an idea of some of the real day-to-day specifics of law issues, legal issues that you deal with in helping uh, your clients? Mm-hmm. I think that there's, uh, absolutely. To preface it though, I, I want to say that there's an unfortunate underlying tension and insecurity that exists today that informs the answer that, uh, that I have to this question. Because my practice, I deal with family creation and family protection. And I think a lot of people in our community felt after the Obama administration like we had made these incredible strides and that finally we could take a breath and we could possibly just not worry as much. But that, I wanna say smugness, but certainly that level of comfort is being challenged now on, on many different levels. So the where I see it, to answer your question, where I see it, family law is all state law based. So if a male couple goes to another state to have a child through surrogacy, they will begin the parental establishment part of the surrogacy journey by having something called a pre-birth order or a post-birth order in the state where the child is born. And what is that? Is that going to a court and setting up the actual legal right uh, to have a contract with a surrogate to to start the process? You need a a court order to do that? Not to start the process. The process can already be started, but this is particularly around parental establishment. So the surrogates usually in the second trimester when the pre-birth order process starts. And remember, all states don't offer pre-birth orders. Some states offer post-birth orders. Some states won't offer pre-birth orders to gay couples or single people, only married heterosexual couples. So the choice of where your surrogate lives is very, very important in this area of the law. Are there some states that are highly favored to find a surrogate in because of that reason? California is a great state. Massachusetts is a great state. Pennsylvania is a pretty good state. But all of the states have either statutory justifications for surrogacy or case law justifications. There are three states, however, where surrogacy is illegal. And New York is one of them, which blows my mind because everybody thinks New York family law is progressive and, you know, out there and we're such a liberal state. But when it comes to surrogacy... Michigan, Louisiana, and New York are the three states where surrogacy, compensated surrogacy, is illegal. So when a couple goes to another state, the pre-birth order is a court order generated in that state that terminates the rights of the surrogate mother, and it creates rights in either the biological father or 
depending on the state, the biological father and the biological father's husband. And this usually isn't done until the uh, second trimester? Correct. It's That's when the paperwork is filed, but the order says upon the birth of the child, the intended parents are the legal parents. So it goes into effect immediately upon, upon the birth of the child, but it's created and it's processed prior to the birth of the child. I would imagine many lay people and lawyers that don't handle these types of cases are curious about that and wonder, wow, surrogacy, well, what if this woman decides she's not going to give up the baby at the time? And I imagine that's why you have these laws. Well, that's one of the reasons why. And that is reflected in the laws, of, for instance, of Canada, where Canada, they will only do post-birth orders because they want to have a cooling off period after the birth to allow the surrogate mother to, uh, to, to I guess, live with the decision for a while. But remember, this is gestational surrogacy. That means that there's no biological relationship between the child and the surrogate mother. There's a separate egg donor altogether. And gestational surrogacy is really the only type of surrogacy that has any kind of protection through regulation by state law in the United States. Traditional surrogacy is the reason why New York's law is as it is. I don't know if you remember the Baby M case. It was in, I believe this is the late 80s, a surrogate, traditional surrogate mother, meaning it was her egg and the sperm of the intended father. She changed her mind and it was a horrible court battle. The court ended up deciding that while she could have parentage, the intended parents would have custody. But there's the poor intended mother with no legal right to her child having to deal with the situation. So... New York had a knee-jerk reaction, and so did New Jersey at the time. And that's why they created the law that's currently in place. So that's the concern, and that's why it's illegal to have surrogacy in New York, going back to the uh, gestational types of surrogacy. Going back to, that was traditional. But the problem has been, and we just went through in this most recent legislative, last month, this most recent legislative session, we had a beautiful law called the Child Parent Security Act that was one of the most thoughtful, one of the most carefully crafted laws to address all of the concerns that surrogacy detractors had, had voiced. It provided for absolute independent representation. It provided for independent doctor's representation. There was even a surrogate's bill of rights that gave the surrogate even more rights than most other states' laws have. And it, we really felt like because the sort of the blue wave that happened in uh, 2018, that we were going to change these laws. And a, a significant number of pro-LGBT laws did pass in New York. The Gay and Trans Panic Defense passed, Gender passed, which is the um, Gender Employment Non-Discrimination Act. We had ENDA before, which was gay and lesbian, but it left the transgender community out. We finally brought them back into the mix. But the Child Parent Security Act was the one piece of legislation that I think was the most controversial because the people who opposed it were the liberal feminist supporters of the gay and lesbian community. So why would they oppose something that would seem to be such a champion law for that community? It was, I think, first and foremost, a feminist issue for them. Gloria Steinem, who I'm 
privileged to know and who knows my family, knows my son through surrogacy, she wrote a letter to the governor that became a rallying cry for this community and the opposition to this bill. But in the letter, she used quotes and facts from a New York State Commission report that was issued in 1998. That same commission issued a report in 2017 that completely overturned their findings from 98. But that report highlighted horror story cases and included information about women being taken advantage of in third world countries and not having agency and blew the issue right up to the point where I think a lot of people who were normally supporters of the gay and lesbian community saw it as they, they build it as baby selling or renting a womb. And the thing that really upset me, because, because in my past, in my work with the men having babies, I know a lot of surrogates. I have never, ever met a surrogate who felt like she was taken advantage of. Most all surrogates, and certainly all that I have met, do this of their own volition. They do it for a good reason. Yes, there is compensation, but they do it to help somebody else have a family. And that compensation isn't an employment compensation. That compensation is meant to restore them for, for the risk that they take and the disruption to their lives and, and the, the dedication to the process. It's, you know, you're not buying a child, you're essentially assisting her to become one. I, I think of it sort of in terms of personal injury, you know, to the, the award for personal injury helps that person become whole again. She makes a dedication to the process and deserves this compensation. And the compensation is not that much. What are we talking about? Compensation is between thirty dollars and $40,000 usually. But the thing that this letter that Gloria Steinem wrote did not take into consideration is that ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has guidelines. You can't do surrogacy without IVF. ASRM says no IVF doctor can implant an embryo into a woman who hasn't passed their guidelines, that haven't, hasn't met their criteria. And one of their criteria is that they have to be in a financially stable home. This was one of the points that Gloria Steinem brought up, that you're going to get all these poor women having children for other people because they can't resist that payment. Well, the truth is they would never qualify to become a surrogate. The, the percentage of, of women who apply to be surrogates and who actually become surrogates, it's like less than 4%, I think, of the women who apply actually become surrogates. Well, it sounds to me like it's pretty close and it may, may have lost the battle this time, but that there's reason to be optimistic that this will pass. There is. And in the previous podcast, you and I spoke about the importance of education in the process. And this is exactly where I see this happening. I actually have my very liberal lesbian assembly member voted against it. And I was very vocally opposed to, to her position. And she took notice of that. And we have a meeting scheduled to come up Who is to that? talk about it. Her name is Deborah Glick. Okay. And to her credit, she's very open to having this conversation. And I hope maybe I can give her a copy of my documentary. I hope maybe I can show her the 2017 commission report and at least point out in the legislation where all of those issues that they said are going to happen, 
they've been addressed specifically in the language of that statute. Do you find that it's difficult to speak with the politicians of influence, such as members of the state Congress? Have you reached out to the governor's office on these issues? How is that received? Yeah, the governor is very supportive, and he would have signed this. The Senate passed it. There was one Senate member who was also very supportive in the marriage equality movement. I worked with her. She's in the Upper East Side, so she's not my senator. But she opposed it also. But it did pass the Senate. Brad Hoyleman, who is openly gay, is a parent through surrogacy. He sponsored the bill in the Senate. And Amy Pollan sponsored it in the Assembly. It went through Senate. Andrew Cuomo said he would sign it. But it was the House. It was the Assembly that blocked it. And they blocked it because Carl Heasty, the majority leader, wouldn't bring it up for a vote. And I have my own reasons why. I won't ascribe them to him, why he didn't do that. But I think it was because he didn't want to want to put people like Deborah Glick on the spot, who had promised the Stonewall Democrats to get their endorsement that she would support this bill. And she changed her mind. Interesting. Yeah. So as an attorney practicing in the surrogacy area, what do you actually do if a lawyer wants to get into this field? What can they expect to be doing? What type of legal work goes into the surrogacy process? And one thing that strikes me as a bit of a hurdle is you're dealing with other state laws because mm-hmm. you have, and if you're not admitted in that other state, how do you, how do you right. make that work? How does right. that happen? It's an interesting hybrid of contract law, a lot of contract law, and insurance law. Because a lot of the work that I think many surrogacy attorneys do is defending exclusions or denials of treatment for surrogates who either are attempting to use their own insurance or there are certain insurance plans that are specifically designed for surrogacy. But the first thing that I would say to anyone who is interested in doing this, there are certain organizations. I'm a member of ARTA, which is the American Reproductive Technology Attorney Association. I'm I'm screwing up the name. It's Art Law. But if you go to artadoption.org, it is one of the best organizations. They have a mentoring program. They have provisional membership for people who don't qualify. You have to have X number of hours working in the field to qualify to become a member of Arta. But it's a really great organization to go online, do their CLEs, go through when you're doing your CLEs, look for the ones on assisted reproductive technology educate yourself as much as possible. And then, you know what, if you're at the beginning of your career, look to do internships at the firms that do this type of law. You can get in and you can learn a lot just from sort of watching. But New York's in a really interesting position because we can't jump in both feet yet because of the prohibition legally. We can do compassionate surrogacy here, which means that there is no compensation for the surrogate. You have to truly find someone who wants to help you have a child but will not take compensation for it. Then the statute protects you. And then there's agreements that you can draft around that. But the agreements themselves are really based in contract law, very interesting contract law, because it's a, they try to provide for every possible contingency. If there's bed rest, if there's lost wages, you know, how do you deal with the medical injury that comes up? Are there going to, you're going to try to put some kind of dietary restrictions on your surrogate mother? And I think the the most interesting one is selective reduction, which is another word for abortion, because there are selective reduction provisions in the surrogacy agreement, but they're unenforceable. 
it is the pregnancy of the surrogate. While that's your child, it's the surrogate's pregnancy. And no court would ever enforce a selective reduction agreement. Um, it's interesting. There's a lot of uh, ethics involved and a lot of medical information. And So when clients hire you, you have a gay couple who says, Anthony, we want you to be our attorney. We're ready to go down the road of surrogacy. And we want you to guide us on helping us find a surrogate, what state to do it in. You guide them through that whole process, correct? I could lose my license for doing that. Why is that? The current law says that if you assist someone in a compensated surrogacy agreement, as an attorney, I can be fined. And after the, I believe the third incident, I could lose my license. So people come to me and they say this. And I say, first of all, number one, you need to find an agency that you're comfortable with that you can work with. Where I can help you is once you've completed the journey and you're on the other side, we can start the adoption process back here to seal those rights for your clients. So what, I guess the reason that it's criminal or uh, you could usually lose a license is that the government doesn't want a lawyer such as yourself to set up a, a shop where you can direct the surrogacies. It's a one-stop shop for everybody because there'd be too much conflict. Is I that think the so, yes. And there are provisions in the new law that restrict the ability of an attorney to have their own surrogacy agency. You know, there's separate escrow agents. There's Everything is very carefully placed out so that the IPs, the intended parents are protected, as well as the surrogate mothers. So what point does a lawyer such as yourself get involved in the process? It depends. With me, I get involved in the process early on because I always offer my personal take on anything. If anybody has questions about what my journey was like, I'm happy to, to offer that information. I also do a lot of public speaking about the generalities of the law around surrogacy and what to expect in the process. But usually if somebody calls me, I will, you know, ask them what agency they're thinking about working with. If they've talked to somebody, you know, if they're thinking about doing something called independent surrogacy, where they find their surrogate themselves and they put all of the pieces together, it's a very difficult but possible process. And then let them know that the most important aspect of it is making sure that their family is secure when they get back from that journey, when they have their child. So you do not get involved in the... Uh the pre-birth order. No, we don't have the capacity in New York. Another thing this law, the Child Parent Security Act would do, is give couples the ability to have a pre-birth order in New York. I don't think I mentioned this in the previous podcast. I'm a donor dad to a lesbian couple. I have two daughters. I'm not their legal parent. But I had to go, I had to surrender my parental rights through the adoption process. This new law would have allowed me to surrender my parental rights through a court order in a much less invasive, much less expensive process that would have allowed the mothers of those girls to know that they were the legal parents from the start, from the minute they were born. So this law really is designed to bring this type of assisted reproductive technology into the 21st century in New York. It's not just about surrogacy, it's about a number of other things. For young lawyers or recent law school graduates or those in law school considering a career in this area of law that you practice in, is it a good choice? Is this an area of law 
that can provide a lot of work, that can provide for a good living, that is provide intellectual stimulation. What are your what are your thoughts if someone wants to get into this field? Yeah, I think it's absolutely fulfilling because the ultimate goal of this type of law is to help someone have a family. And there's nothing more gratifying than being able to do that. With the restrictions in New York right now, there are fewer of us who do this. I think what I guess one of my concerns is when this, I think this law will pass. And when it does pass, there is going to be not an explosion, but certainly an increase in the number of attorneys who attempt to practice this type of law. That concerns me a little bit, simply because it's very specific type of law. And there's no template contract for gestational carrier agreements. You can't impose one person's journey on another person's journey. It's all very individual. It's all very contingent upon, well, if this, then that, if this, then that. And you have to be thinking in terms of that. And if you are coming from just a, you know, a, 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 I guess a traditional contract law background, you're going to miss a lot of things. So the, the best piece of, of advice I could give is to try to work with a firm that has done this and work under an attorney who knows what those, you know, possible contingencies are and where the pitfalls can lie and, you know, how to do insurance analysis to make sure that the carrier is covered. Because in the end, if you screw up on insurance, she's the one who the insurance bills go to, and it's her credit that's affected by it. So there's, there's so many different avenues that you kind of have to go down and be knowledgeable about, much more so than in, I think, in some other like traditional estate planning in that area of law, which I also practice and I love very much as well. But that tends to be a little bit more stagnant. Every person's situation is different. You build their plan around their situation. But with this, you're dealing with so many other variables. It's a lot to be, it's a lot to be on top of. Let's talk about gay couples adopting children. Is that different than a straight couple adopting a child in courts in the eyes of the law? It's interesting because in the eyes of the law, it may not be. However, you've probably heard that religious exemption laws are now under the current administration seeing a um, increase in power. And some adoption agencies who choose to discriminate against gay couples are now being given the green light by this administration to do that and by the agencies that control adoption. So it's not as sure a thing. I think heterosexual couples certainly have an advantage over homosexual couples. In the end, if it's a private placement adoption and that birth mother chooses you, that's fine. You've got it. You can do it. And I've worked with a number of couples where that's been the case, and it's been wonderful, very successful. But if you're going through an agency, particularly an agency like Catholic Charities or some, an agency that has a moral stake in, or as they see it, a moral stake in the placement of that child, then it can be a lot harder. And also, I think people assume that Having a child through adoption is just as easy as having a child through surrogacy and certainly less expensive. Well, the truth of the matter is you could be searching for that, you know, birth mother and get to the point where the child is born and she changes her mind. And it's not a sure thing with adoption. And it can take much, much longer through adoption and cause an incredible amount of emotional heartache in that process. And surrogacy, granted, it's this, you, 
the ability, the options, the possibilities for, you know, horrible things happening are the same with any woman, you know, in pregnancy. Bad things can happen. But with surrogacy also, you have a better timeline, a more clear timeline, also from a fertility perspective. And this is something very interesting that a lot of people don't know. Because gay men have to use donor eggs, the egg donors that we use are younger. Their eggs are much more viable. Our percentage rates of getting pregnant on the first try are in the 70s and 80s. So it's a much, you have a much better chance just because of the biology of the whole IVF process to have a successful pregnancy uh, on your first try. So it's an it's a interesting dilemma for a lot of people. And I've talked to a number of my clients, gay men, who for personal reasons have wanted to adopt. Either they were adopted and, and they want to you know, make sure that their adopted child knows and they can be a mentor for their adoptive child. But I've also talked to a number of other couples who really desperately just want to have a family and are fortunate enough to either be able to qualify for some of the funding programs that are there for gay men or to have the money to do it on their own. As you sit here today, having practiced for many years and hopefully have many more years to come of practice, what have you observed to be the biggest change in the law as it affects gay rights for good or bad in your career? And what do you see in the future that you hope for, that you fear uh, to come? Wow, that is such a great question because in the lifespan of my career, the gay rights movement has transformed and taken off in a way that I never expected when I started. I wrote a law review article in 2011 about how to do estate planning for gay couples. And it was all of these circuitous grantor retained income trusts and things that you have to do because marriage wasn't available. And then all of a sudden in 2013, the Windsor decision made it illegal for the federal government to deny a marriage. And 2014, the Obergefell decision made marriage equality, the law of the land. And when that happened, everything changed. I became a traditional estate planner from that part of my practice. I had all of the tools that every other estate planner could use. You know, I think from a organic, spiritual place in our community, we began to see possibilities that we never had before. When I grew up as a gay kid, getting married and having a family, that was alien to me. But now being gay as a young man or a young woman, growing up, having, getting married and having a family is absolutely an option. It's a mental shift that's taken place that informs so much of what I do. But I think the biggest change for me in my practice and the one I guess that disturbs me the most is to see how our community is so dependent on the fragility of politics that we rode a wave with Obama that we never ever thought that we would. And we got to a place of, you know, I guess, acceptance and tolerance. And then now to feel like that could be taken away. Clarence Thomas wrote in a concurring opinion in an unrelated case 
about how he thinks stare decisis is not sacred. And everyone interpreted it to believe that the Obergefell decision was now possibly in jeopardy. So to, to feel like our rights, to feel like what we do as attorneys to protect our community is so dependent upon the will of the people is it's, it's a little alarming to me because to me, it's not about being accepted and tolerated. It's about being respected and having the community have a foundation that knows that that respect can't be taken away. Well, the work that you're doing uh, is helping that change. And that's why it's so important that there are people like you, there are lawyers like you that are champion, championing the rights of gay couples, uh, and transgender individuals, because without you doing that type of work, they don't have the people fighting for them and change it, it will never happen, right? So you have to do that. You need lawyers, you need the troops, you need to build your network to have other lawyers as vested in, the, in this movement as you, to make change and to make stories personal, right? Because I think it's just truly ignorance, you know, that people don't understand what other people are like, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what stops it. And once you get somebody with influence to meet a gay couple and see a, the surrogacy process and see how you and Gary and your 10-year-old Nicholas wouldn't you know, be here but for this mm -hmm. process. Now you have this beautiful family and that's all anybody wants as a parent or a child or a grandparent or, or, or a sibling is to have loved ones in a family. That's what we all want. So, so happy that you're doing the work that you do in such a competent way a smart way, and hopefully uh, you'll continue to inspire others to join in and, and do what you're doing. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens. We have an election coming up next year to see what kind of impact politics will continue to have for better or for worse. And fortunately, states still have rights. So those who need it can go to the mm -hmm. states that help them. Hopefully change will continue for the better. Uh, but thank you for sharing your story and, you know, doing things like this, spreading the word is what will continue to help change to occur. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for letting me uh, talk with you. And I hope that the people who are listening can, uh, can, can get something from it. If you want to reel off again, a couple of websites for young lawyers that may be interested in this field, where to go to for resources of how to get more involved, where, where, where should they look? Absolutely. You can, first, you can go to my website, which is timeforfamilies.com. If you're interested in surrogacy, you can go to menhavingbabies.org and youtube.com slash menhavingbabies. And the adoptionart.org website will lead you to the academy of assisted reproduction attorneys. And that is really sort of the gold standard for attorneys working in this practice. Great. Well, thanks again, Anthony. It's such a pleasure having you join us. And, uh, and I thank everybody for listening to this episode of The Mentor ESQ. Hope that you enjoyed it. Enjoyed hearing again from Anthony Brown. I'd extremely appreciate it if you would give us a nice review, rating, and uh, share this podcast with your friends, your colleagues, and your classmates. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor ESQ. 